from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 9th. Today, how the economy will look after the pandemic, water shutoffs in a public health crisis, and the lockdown ends in Wuhan. You know, I covered the financial crisis as a reporter at The Wall Street Journal 12 years ago. And that's Damien Paletta, now an economics editor for The Post. And I think that experience really scarred me to how quickly things can go from the good old days to, you know, sheer panic. And so as things kind of continued to improve and as the stock market hit record highs, you know, just in the past few months, there was this part of me that said, you know, the music's going to stop. And, uh, you know, how prepared are we going to be as a country, as an economy for for what's going to happen next? So, so give us a sense of what the economy looked like just a couple months ago and how that compares to now. The strongest part of the economy a few months ago was the labor market. Uh, the unemployment rate was 3.5%. Wages were growing around 3%, which is, you know, not great, but it's fine. You know, everyone who wanted a job could get a job. Consumer confidence was high. Business confidence was high. Everyone felt pretty good about where things were going. You know, the stock market was at a record level. And then all of that just kind of changed overnight during that one week in March when the economy came to a screeching halt. So what is your sense of how much worse things could potentially get? I mean, we're already at unemployment numbers that are beginning to look like something from the Great Depression. So is it going to get worse? Former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen predicted this week that the unemployment rate could reach between 20 percent and 30 percent. I think that unemployment rates for a time may go to depression levels. And at the height of the Great Depression, the unemployment rate was 25 percent. The way these things play out is that they snowball. So people lose their jobs, you know, and there's millions of people who have lost their jobs. Those people stop spending, right? When people stop spending, then other companies go out of business and those people lose their jobs. So you have this kind of domino effect there. And also, a lot of people still have their jobs, but they're going to start acting differently. They're not going to be spending as much money because they're worried about losing their jobs or what's happening in their 401k. So you have this, you know, kind of collective freeze kind of washing across the economy all at once. And until you have everyone kind of moving in the other direction, until you have consumer confidence picking up again, that's the only way this kind of reverses itself. And right now, all the trends are in the wrong direction. One thing that I've been wondering about is just how much can the economy just bounce back once these sort of outside restrictions are lifted? It's a great question, and it's one we really won't know the answer to until this is all over. I think the lessons that we're seeing, though, from places like China, which obviously this hit China much sooner and their economy has already kind of recovered a bit, is that it's not a V-shaped curve, as the president has kind of suggested it could be. I think there's a tremendous pent-up demand, both in terms of the stock market and in terms of the economy. And once this goes away, once it uh, goes through and we're done with it, I think you're going to see a tremendous, a tremendous surge. What do you mean by a V-shaped curve? So let's say you um, 
it's like a roller coaster where you go straight down and then you come straight back up, right? So the unemployment rate goes up high and then it comes right back down. That's not going to happen. People are not going to be the same. The economy is not going to be the same. A lot of these businesses are not going to come back. A lot of these laid off workers are not going to be immediately rehired. We're not going to go out to the movies and to clubs and to restaurants like we did in January, because we're going to be, you know, nervous about spending the money, nervous about sitting next to all those people. All the consumer behavior is going to change. And when all those things are different, when there's kind of this like thunderclap through the economy, then it takes a long time for people to readjust their behavior. I mean, people like we've been to the grocery stores, people have that look in their eyes. Like it's not the same. People want to get their stuff and get home. And, you know, until that changes, until people can kind of relax, the economy is not going to be the same. And that's going to take a long time. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is large companies that were struggling even before the pandemic started. You know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about this idea of leverage loans, which I'm totally fascinated by. Companies that are kind of big names and used to be doing very well and aren't doing so well in recent years that they took out these huge loans to basically float themselves thinking that they would be able to continue to grow their business and revenue in coming years because the economy was chugging along so well. And it seems like if all these companies have taken out big loans with the expectation that things were going to get better, the fact that things are going to get worse, I wonder if that will have kind of a cascading effect. Absolutely. It's a great question. I mean, I think when we saw during the financial crisis, a lot of people had these really risky mortgages and things would work as long as housing prices kept going up. And you have the same kind of thing here when you have all these essentially subprime loans for corporations, a lot of corporations that, quite frankly, didn't have the financial wherewithal to pay back the loans. But as long as interest rates were really low and the economy was humming along, they could sort of get by. And there were a lot of people who were raising concerns that when there was a recession, these loans would be a mess. And there's lots of these loans. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of these loans in the financial system. For example, retailers and energy companies have a lot of these leveraged loans, which means essentially that they have taken out way more money than they could possibly repay. And now you have a situation with the retail industry and the oil and gas industry where there's total nightmare and they have all this debt that they have to repay and they have no ability to repay it. And so now you have the, you know, you have the scenario where we have to decide kind of as a government and as a country, do we need to step in and prevent like a total collapse of these industries, even though everyone warned and everyone knew that they were taking on a huge amount of risk? Or do we kind of let them go and cross our fingers that it doesn't kind of bring the rest of the economy down with it? I mean, are we looking at a world where even as people see social distancing and things start to get back to normal in the summer or fall, that you'll just see this wave of big stores, big companies just saying, look, we're not going to reopen. We're not going to hire back all these people. We just have to fold. That question is the crux of everything that we're facing right now. You know, a few weeks ago, Macy's announced that it was going to lay off or furlough most of its 125,000 person workforce. And it's impossible to imagine that on June 1st, they're going to rehire or bring back 125,000 people. I mean, that they were in the process of closing stores anyway. And a lot of other companies were kind of in the same boat. And it's going to take a huge adjustment for Americans to live in a world where there's not as many, you know, physical presence retailers as there used to be. And those retail jobs are not going to be there for a lot of, you know, working class and younger people. And so, you know, what that next job or economy looks like, we're not sure, but a lot of those jobs are going to be gone forever. I'm also wondering about the stock market right now. 
Um, and our boss, Madalika, she is often telling us, you know, look, the stock market and the economy are not the same thing. The stocks go up and they go down, and that doesn't necessarily translate into what we're seeing in real people's lives. But I have been really confused in recent days when there are signs that the stock market is starting to pick back up a little bit, even as things in terms of unemployment are, are getting a lot worse. So how should we be thinking about the stock market right now? And does that have any bearing on, on what's going to be happening in the future? My view in the stock market is that 10 million people filed unemployment benefits in the last two weeks. And that number is going to keep going up. When you have 10 million people literally kicked out of the economy in the span of 14 days, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the unemployment rate at the end of 2021, okay, so like 18 months, more than 18 months from now, is going to be 9%, which is near the height of the unemployment rate during the Great Recession. So it's impossible to imagine that all these companies are going to be doing amazing when all of them right now are begging for federal bailouts, tremendous federal bailouts, in order to keep in operations. It's incredible for me to think that the stock market's going to be able to sustain when you have so much damage to the economy that we haven't even fully been able to comprehend. We're hearing now a lot about jobless numbers, and it seems like every week things are getting worse and more people are are unemployed. But I'm curious if there are other numbers or measures that you're looking at to understand what's happening in the economy right now. Yeah. Other things that are really important to be monitoring, though, are credit card defaults. You know, when people start falling behind on their credit card bills, that's kind of a scary thing in the economy. Mortgage delinquencies, when people start falling behind on their mortgage payments, that's another thing to be really concerned about. You know, I'd like to really monitor consumer behavior because I think, you know, where consumers go, so goes the economy. And those are the sorts of things that we should be paying a lot of attention to, much more than the stock market. What is your sense from economists that you know or that you talk to or or hear from, what is your sense of what is keeping them up at night right now? Well, I mean, obviously, until they solve the healthcare component of this, the vaccine and the treatment, there's almost nothing that they can do on the economy. I mean, they passed this $2 trillion law, and it looks like they're going to maybe go back for another trillion, you know, within days. But all of that's just kind of to buy time until they get the health piece of this fixed. You know, I don't know how much more money they can keep shoveling into the economy if people are just going to stay home forever. I mean, it's just an unbelievable phenomenon that we're living with right now. And so I think, you know, economists like to have models. They like to, like, have their inputs and know what's going to happen. If you do A, then it's going to lead to B. But there's not a dynamic. There's not, like, great study on the 1918 flu. But what they do know is that it's bad, a lot of people are suffering, and that it's going to last for some time. Friday night, I cleared off my desk and took out a 500-piece puzzle and did a puzzle, I think, for the first time in my life by myself. And it, like, took me the whole weekend. By Sunday night, when it was almost time to shift back into work mode, I finished the puzzle And then I don't know what you do when you finish a puzzle. You just kind of leave it there. And so I went and sat in the chair. And then my wife was trying to get organized for the week. And she tried to move it. And the puzzle fell apart. And what are you going to do? But it was almost like a metaphor for the economy in that the economy that we had before, we kind of was like this beautiful thing, we thought. And it looked so nice. And it was sitting there. And then something happens and it's like gone. And we can try to put it back together again. And some parts will still be there. 
but some parts of it will never be there again. You know, some pieces of the puzzle will be gone and there might be some new pieces. There's going to be a new economy and we might not finish this puzzle, you know, for a couple of years before someone takes it apart again and we have to start over. Damian Paletta is an economics editor for The Post. From the start of this pandemic, experts have been telling us the same advice over and over again to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Everything you need to know about the coronavirus and keeping your family healthy. We know about washing your hands. It seems simple. Hand washing with soap and water. Start with the DIY vaccine. Okay. Everyone talks about washing their hands. It's about keeping your fingers clean. Wash your hands. For at least 20 seconds, vigorously rub your hands back and forth with a good lather because you want to actually dislodge. But uh, as the coronavirus has spread all over the country, my colleague Isaac Stanley Becker has been reporting on people that haven't been able to do that basic thing. They haven't been able to wash their hands. So Amy Yancey is a 39-year-old resident of a mobile home community in Beaumont, Texas. I live in Forest Hollows. A lot of the trailers, the, the lots overlap because they're just squeezing trailers in. I was actually in the hospital when I found out I had just delivered my my child early, prematurely at 20 weeks and was trying to recover. She had been pregnant and unfortunately had a miscarriage and so had to be hospitalized last month. After the delivery and the the loss of my baby. My neighbor messaged me and told me that the water was off. When she returned from the hospital last month, she came home to learn that the water at the trailer park where she lives had been shut off. And then that, you know, we have the coronavirus going on. You know, you have to constantly wash your hands and practice extra care with your hygiene. That, that made me nervous. Plus, I was, I'm prone to infection because I was open from surgery. So it it made me nervous. Amy is one of several dozen people who live in Forest Hollow, that community in Beaumont, Texas. Beaumont is a relatively poor city where about uh, 20% of residents are in poverty. It's about 30 miles from the Louisiana border. Already when the water was shut off, there were eight positive cases and that's since grown and, uh, you know, recently a death in the city by the virus. So why had the water been shut off at Forest Hollow in the first place? It had been shut off because the facility's operator was behind on its bills. So the problem was not that individual residents had failed to pay. She was up on her bills both for the two-bedroom trailer as well as, you know, water and other utilities But the facility's operator was in a bit of a dispute with the city over about $50,000. They were behind on certain bills and there were late fees. And the city was demanding that some large sum in order to get the water turned back on. This is not the first time that the water has been turned off. And usually when it's turned off, it's about, it's never a one day thing. It's usually like three to five days with no water. The facilities operators said they weren't able to pay that, and the city went ahead and shut off the water on March 19th, which was the same day that the state declared a public health emergency over the coronavirus. And so what happened after she got home and and saw that she had no water? 
it was really a dire situation. I mean, imagine not having access to water in this situation. Not only was she unable to take precautions to recover and stay hydrated, but she also wasn't able to do basic things like wash her hands and flush the toilet, some of the most basic things to protect ourselves during this pandemic. So, of course, the water's flying off the shelves. It would cause the people panicking. So we had to go try and scrounge up some water. And luckily, we, my husband found like three gallons uh, in a place in, in a store that wasn't like on the water aisle that someone had set down. So he was able to get like three gallons to use to try to keep our hands clean and to try to keep my wounds clean. One of the kind of bitter ironies throughout this process was that in the main office at the trailer park, there were signs advising residents to wash their hands, which of course they were not able to do for a period of days because the water had been shut off. There are 65 units at the trailer park and there's a lot of cohabitation of multiple generations. There's young children, there's elderly people with various comorbidities and other sorts of health problems. I spoke to people in one family who are living, you know, eight to a small trailer. And so it's a quite densely packed area where people need to be taking these sorts of precautions. Yeah, um, I was at work and um, my fiance gave me a text and he was like, um, we have no water. So one of the residents, Tanya, is a 48-year-old former manager at a local restaurant. She actually just recently lost her job. I got laid off. I was one of the last managers hired, so I was one of the first ones to be laid off. And she was particularly enraged about this because she is caring for her fiancé at the trailer park, her fiancé who's sick with cancer. He's 49. He's got Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, it was scarier because the water was one of the main things that they told us that we needed, you know, during this was to keep our hands clean. And so obviously has particular concerns about contracting this virus given his underlying health condition. Well, I called the... Park's HR lady. I got a hold of her somehow. And so she was one of the residents who tried to advocate for herself and, you know, take matters into her own hands. I called the state representative, the governor. I even called President Trump a message on his little machine. She used social media to contact a judge in Jefferson County. Judge Brannick is the one that actually made some phone calls and then his wife got back to me. The judge's wife actually ended up responding and trying to help her to contact others. And she was really quite persistent in her efforts. But why would the city do something like this as the COVID crisis is suddenly getting so much more serious? Like, couldn't they see what a problem that would pose for all these people who are living in this place who are not even the ones who didn't pay their bills? Well, the reality is that Cities across the country shut off water and other utilities for residents in dire straits, even during difficult periods like this. So this pandemic is obviously a especially stark example, but one estimate suggests that as many as 15 million Americans have their water shut off each year. And so sometimes that's during dire public health emergencies when people especially need to wash their hands. But people always need to flush the toilet. They always need to shower. And what this situation just showed is how extreme these situations are and how precarious access to these resources are for people in certain parts of the country. 
I feel like I keep saying this over and over again, but it seems like over the past few weeks, what this pandemic is showing is that so many of the systems that exist in the U.S. and so many different forms of infrastructure are just failing all the time. And then in a moment like this, a moment when we really need them, that it becomes clear how much of basic parts of life are a huge problem. Because we see how grave an effect it can have as people are stuck at home and, and trying to stay healthy. I think that's right. And I would say two things. One is that it doesn't have to be this way. We see peer countries taking different approaches. So, for instance, in France, water suppliers are forbidden to cut off uh, or reduce the water supply, even in the event of non-payment or um, being late or short on payments. And then also I was I was really uh, struck to learn that, you know, even in cases where cities or um, other jurisdictions had turned back on the water, it was really only after the results of, you know, somewhat extraordinary measures. So in this particular case at this trailer park in Texas, the city did end up after several days turning back on the water, but it was only after a judge intervened and issued a temporary restraining order. And, and so this problem, is it on the radar of federal lawmakers or is there any action on the federal level to stop utilities from just being able to pause services to people during this critical time? It is on their radar whether there's action is a is a separate matter. So as legislative packages were moving forward in both chambers of Congress, the draft legislation in the House responding to the outbreak included $1.5 billion to defray water costs, which was going to be joined with a mandate that recipient states halt utility shutoffs. But the more than $2 trillion package that ended up being advanced in the Senate and then approved by the House and signed by the president didn't include an allocation like that. And so for the folks who are living in this trailer park in, in Beaumont, now that they have their water turned back on, how are they feeling? Well, it's a relief. It's certainly a relief to be able to wash their hands, to flush their toilet. But I think there's just a lot of concern. This this uh, you know particular court order expires soon. I know that it's a temporary situation. I know that once the pandemic is is settled and the ban is lifted, the water will more than likely be disconnected again. And they're wondering about what's going to happen. They're also wondering about whether the these bills are ultimately going to be paid. I know there's a, a billing issue, but you still don't take that out on the residents. And whether they're going to continue to experience just waves of shutoff that they have no control over. We have constantly thought about leaving and trying to find somewhere else to go. Um, it is hard because life has given curveballs, so we uh, kind of don't have an option right now. Isaac Stanley Becker is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. On April 8th, after 76 days, the lockdown in Wuhan was finally lifted. The city had already been sort of creeping back to life for a couple weeks. 
but people can travel again, people can drive in and out of the city, and the shops that were deemed you know, non-essential are finally able to reopen. My name is Emily Rahala, and I cover foreign affairs for The Post. My name is Lydia Chen, who I am. That's a long, winding story. I talked to Lydia a couple days before the lockdown in Wuhan was ending. So Lydia is a 30-year-old, and she lives in Manhattan. She planned to fly home and spend the Lunar New Year with her parents in her hometown. She landed in Wuhan on January 19th. I, I wasn't following any of that information closely. So when I landed, like, to me, almost like everything is absolutely normal. That changed pretty quickly. Days later, on January 23rd, the Chinese government completely shut down the city. As soon as it shut down, there was at least, I want to say, about two weeks' time where everybody was scrambling. And the government was scrambling. You know, our citizens here, we're trying, we're scrambling to first digest what's going on, also trying to filter all the information that are flooding in. She describes the early days as, as terrifying and a feeling of helplessness because everyone was stuck at home. The early days was so... That there were so much emotions, but now at this point on April what fifth, it almost feel like a, a distant memory, like a last, like a last life almost. After the initial terror of those first few weeks, she settled into what a lot of people are experiencing now: her mom, her dad, and an aunt and uncle who had been visiting from out of town when the lockdown started, spent months really trapped together in a three-bedroom apartment. They read the horror stories about what was playing out outside. Then they just waited. We're so similar. Like the, your first reaction to a unknown disease, every time you thought somebody was exaggerating, it all turned out to be true. And then you go through this whole anxiety period and it's very natural for people everywhere to you know, go get more food than you need because everybody's in this survival mode. Then you described... Life as a lockdown lifts, as a strange mix. She'll be feeling like herself again. And then, as she put it, sorrow jumps up and slaps you right in the face. Like humans, we are very easy to forget, and you almost feel like now walking under free sun, you feel like, oh, I have a, a newborn, a new life. But it almost just remind you everything happened was mm-hmm. real. Like, this all happened, and... I feel like it would take a while for people to really go back to their, you know, really go past this and back to the normal routine. I think we'll, we'll go through this. We'll go through this and hopefully we'll all be a better version of ourselves because for one, we all have this like very rare moment of either family time or more solitary personal time to do more self-reflection really this crisis will teach you what's really important to you like really all these like sayings you always hear now when you live through this you would it would really stick with you emily rahala covers foreign affairs for the post
that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The news has been a little depressing lately, so we've been asking you to send us happy things. And we got this lovely dispatch from a listener, Amy, in Western Massachusetts. We'd been planning to get two goats this spring. However, last week we came home with three. Molly, Opal, and Lola. If you know anything about goats, you're going to know that they're very silly. They're very mischievous. And they'll talk very loudly to anyone who will listen. (laughs) If you have goats that want to talk to us or anything else going on in your life that's making you smile during this weird time, send a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Good morning. (laughs) The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.